According to a Mondova website, I looked up the top 10 questions that people all over the world asked in a Google search. All right, so even as I mentioned that, I don't know if you're kind of like, hey, I think this would be one of those questions. But the website, they listed their global search volume, so how many times a certain question was asked in a month. And it also listed the cost per click data. That means how much like advertisers pay for whenever someone asks that question so that that can be on the website. And so I looked at this website and just kind of thought about these different questions, and some of them were not too much of a surprise to me. Others were like, okay, I wouldn't have guessed that to be in the top 10. One of them I completely didn't even understand. Understand, but here are the top 10 questions asked every single month. Number 10 is how many ounces are there in a pint? All right, and so maybe you're like, I've always wondered that. Or when you're cooking, you have to check that out. Number nine is when is Mother's Day? All right, so this year we got to know what day is it. That's an important day to know. Number eight is similar to number 10, but it's how many ounces are in a cup? Number seven was simply how to lose weight. So people are wanting to know that. Number six, what song is this? And so you're going along listening to something. Hey, I want to know what song this is. Number five is the one that I'm not quite sure. It's simply, can you run it? And so I even typed that in on my computer to try and figure out what that was. And there were different like video games or technological things that popped up with it. I don't really know. Maybe you've searched that before. Maybe you haven't. But that is the number five every single month that is typed into the Google search. Number four is how to tie a tie. All right, I don't know how many of you know how to do that. Some of you are like, I need to find that out. Number three is how to register to vote. Number two is what time is it? <laughs> Maybe you should buy a watch. I don't know, but what time is it? And then number one is what is my IP? Okay, so what's my IP address? That was searched three million times every single month. And you can actually add in another 450,000 um, times if you write the word address in there too. What is my IP address? That surprises me. I have never typed that in. But anyway, those were the top questions every single month that people type in to Google searches. And I thought about this idea of questions, that you and I, we ask questions every single day. Although statistics show that kids ask more questions than adults. And maybe you know one of those kids that asks why like 20 times within one minute. You know, why, 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 you know. Those kind of kids may ask as many questions in that one minute as an adult might in the entire day. But we do, we ask these questions because we're curious. Or we ask because we're not sure how to do something or how something works. We ask because we need to make plans. We ask uh, because we want to learn or we ask because we simply don't know. And so our new series is called Questioning Christmas. And maybe you see that title and you're like, I wonder where we're going to go with this. Because after all, no one has to convince you of the Christmas story. Like you believe that Jesus came to earth as a baby. Like you believe that the angels spoke to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. You believe that the wise men, they followed a star and they offered up these gifts to this new king. So you don't really question Christmas. And I would imagine a lot of people in this room or watching online would feel the same way that you do. But we're going to look at some of Scripture and some of the few individuals that were involved in the events that we celebrate at Christmas and each week, we're going to focus on a question that they have. And as we zoom in on their doubts and their questions, we're also going to consider their responses, that they had faith amongst uncertainty. And as we do that, maybe you'll connect with one of these individuals in a way that you never have before. 
And so if you have your Bibles or devices, open up to Luke chapter 1, all right? Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. We're going to look at a man named Zechariah. And a lot of people may not include him in their Christmas story since he wasn't there at the birth of Jesus. However, Luke includes Zechariah in his gospel because God weaves his story right along with the story of Mary and Joseph. And so if you don't know how they weave together, well, you're in the perfect place to learn. And so we're in Luke chapter 1. We're going to read verses 5 through 7 and then just continue on and see what God's got in store for us today. And so starting at verse one, or chapter 1, verse 5, it says this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So it starts off talking about in the time of Herod. This is Herod the Great, who politically, he was a huge success, but his family was a mess. In fact, he had 10 wives, and eventually his favorite wife, he has her killed. And later he regrets that decision, and so he has some of his servants dress like her and walk along like the hallways calling out her name. So things obviously are not clicking for him. He knew that he was not loved by the people. And so when he was dying, Dying, he arrested a large number of noblemen and ordered that when I die, they are all to be executed as well so that there would be mourning in the land. Like that was his thought process. Well, when he ended up dying, his sister freed all of them and they gave Herod a noble funeral because they were happy that the noblemen were freed. Like in the time of Herod the Great. So that's our time frame here. And there's a man named Zechariah. And he was a priest. And we'll talk about that in just a few more moments. But you need to know that his wife, Elizabeth, was also the daughter of a priest. And so that's kind of like living with double honor, all right? And so they lived this life that was faithful to God. However, one thing did not go the way that they wanted. And it was a big thing. That Elizabeth was not able to have any kids. And prayer after prayer had been offered up to God to change this situation Yet it didn't seem to work. And now the couple is old. And I don't know if you hear that news, it maybe hits you differently than the person next to you. For some of you, you know the end of the story, so you view it through that lens. For some of you, you begin to have compassion for her because, man, someone who wants to be able to have kids and can't, like you just feel sorry for them. Or maybe you have a deep connection if you and your spouse have not been able to have kids. Like you feel their pain, their struggle that can continue to remain like time and time again and remind you of that situation that you're in. You know what, if you were a Jew and you lived back in that time, you might be wondering what Elizabeth did that God would bring this curse upon her. You see, the Old Testament scriptures talked about how children were a blessing from God. And so it was seen that if you weren't able to have kids, it was a curse from God. And so Elizabeth, even with her high standing of being married to a priest and being the daughter of a priest, still would have felt scorn, especially from some of the other women in town. And so that's, again, kind of our setting. Let's see what happens as we keep reading verses 8 through 10 in Luke chapter 1. It says, Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as the priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, 
all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Okay, so this is where we got to grasp what it means to be a priest. The job of a priest, it didn't keep you busy all year round. In fact, there were about 21,600 priests. Okay, so that's quite a few. And so each of them served two weeks of the year, plus at the big festivals. Okay, they were all there to take part in their service there. And so Zachariah's division, he was serving at the temple when he was chosen by lot to burn the incense. And so there were three kind of fun jobs that were chosen every single day by lot. And the first would be to start the fire or rekindle it from the day before. So all you pyros would be like, man, I want that job. Okay. Another job would be the the officiating priest of the day. And then the third one, there was trimming the candlesticks and preparing the incense within the holy place. And that was the most sacred service of the day. And you were lucky if you got to do that once within your lifetime of service. And so at this specific time of day, the priest would go in and they would spread the incense on the altar. And as the incense rose, the people outside, they would see it and they would worship God and they would pray. And so that's what's going on as we continue to read our text. Let's look at verses 11 through 17. It says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled, and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." So here's Zechariah in the holy place, and an angel appears, and you can imagine how terrified Zechariah would be. Like, just think about for a moment, one of those times that you thought you were alone, and you realized you weren't. Like, maybe it was a spouse there, or a kid there, or a friend there, or a coworker there. And I wonder, in that moment, what did you do? Like, did you scream? Did you jump? Like, out of reflex, did you punch someone? You know, I don't know. What did you do in that moment when you thought you were alone, but you weren't? And here is Zechariah. Not only is he not alone, but it's an angel with him. And the angel said what most angels said when they bring a message to someone that would start out saying, do not be afraid. I'm sure that's a lot easier said than done, but that's the message given to him. And the angel says, the prayer that you have been praying for for years, the one about wanting to be a father, your prayer has been heard. And God is going to answer it. He said, Elizabeth is gonna have a son and you are to give him the name John. He's gonna be a special boy. He's going to live according to this thing called a Nazarite vow, where you're not allowed to be around and drink wine or grapes, or you're not supposed to cut your hair. You're not supposed to be in contact with dead bodies. And the angel says he is going to be great. He is going to bring joy to so many people. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, and he is going to help prepare the way for the Lord. That's what your son is going to do. That is quite a message. I wonder, if you were told that message, what would be going through your mind? Like, maybe you'd feel pride. Maybe you'd feel thankfulness for the words that were just told to you. Like, maybe you'd be saying, could you repeat that again? Like, I need to know all those things again. Maybe that's what you'd do. 
Maybe you'd begin picturing your 70-year-old wife like with morning sickness and what that's going to look like. Like, I'm not sure what would run through your mind. But here's Zechariah and what he says in verse 18. He says, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Like we don't get to hear the voice inflection of the question. We don't get to see the facial expression or the body language. But Zechariah asks this question, how can I be sure of this? Like, how can I know for sure this is going to happen? Is there some sort of proof that you can give me to help my confidence? Or even as I tell other people about what is going to happen to back up what I say, well, he is about to get proof. And so as we read verses 19 through 22, here's what we see. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. It says, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. And so they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Now, from where you and I sit, like it may be kind of ironic to ask for a sign when an angel is speaking to you? Like, hey, I'm not sure I understand this or believe this. Can you give me a sign? But Gabriel confirms it. He says, I'm a reliable source. Like, I am in the throne room of God. And then he tells Zechariah that you're going to live in silence until John's birth. And most people realize that that idea of living in silence means not being able to speak. Um, but I also am pretty positive that means that he can't hear either. The reason I would tell you that is in Luke chapter 1, verse 62, we're told that people are making signs to him. If you can hear, you don't have to make signs to someone. So I think that as he's living in silence, he's not able to speak and he's not able to hear. And so he's now going to live in silence over the next few months. You know what? Most of the time when priests were working, they would work quickly because they didn't want God to get angry at maybe something that they did and strike them dead. And so the people outside are kind of beginning to wonder, why is Zachariah in there so long? And so when he comes out and he's not talking and he's playing charades to be able to communicate what happened, they understand that he has seen a vision. So let's read the last three verses of this section. It says this, when his time of service was completed... He returned home. And after this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant for five months, remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and he has taken away my disgrace among the people. And so Zechariah, he finishes up his two weeks of work there and then he goes home. And I wonder, can you imagine what that conversation would be like? Like, first of all, the difficulty of trying to communicate whatever happened because you're not able to speak or be able to hear. And then secondly, just the wow of the message, like the content of the message. So this conversation between Elizabeth and Zechariah, and she becomes pregnant and remains mostly at home for five months. And the excitement that most, both of them must have felt, I think about it after year after year after year, now they're finally going to have this child and it's not going to be any ordinary child either. This child is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. They are getting ready for some pretty big things. And so the rest of the story can actually be found in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. And you can read about how nine months go by and John is born. And friends and family and neighbors, they're all excited for them. But Zechariah, 
he still can't speak, even though John has been bored. And on the eighth day, it's time for them to circumcise him and to technically give him the name. And the priests, they're going to name this boy Zechariah after his father to keep his name in the family. But Elizabeth, she speaks up and she says, no, 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 we have to name him John. And all the people are like, no way. And they begin to try to convince her otherwise. And when they see that she's not budging, they go and they talk to John. They're like, hey, or not John, to Zachariah. And they're like, what are we going to name this son? And he says, give me a tablet. All right, he says, I need a tablet. And so they bring it to him and he writes on this tablet, his name is John. And at that moment, he is able to verbally speak again. And he begins by praising God. And people realize that God is going to do something special with this boy named John. Zechariah, he knows that part of John's purpose is to prepare the way for Mary's baby, for the son of God. And Zechariah prophesies in those verses, and he says, the Messiah, he is coming. He's coming to save his people, but in a much different way than people think. He's not going to lead this revolution against Rome, but he's going to free all of us all of us from sin and from eternal death. And those are the events that we're looking at today that surround Zechariah. But the question that we're specifically looking at is, how can I be sure of this? Now, you have to know, this isn't the first time that anyone in Scripture has actually asked God for a sign. Like, you could go back to Genesis chapter 15, and Abram, he's told, you will have a son, even though you're older, and I'm going to give you all this land. And he asked, well, how can I know that I'm going to gain possession of all of this? You can go to Exodus chapter 4, and God is talking with Moses, and God says, you're going to go speak to the Israelites. You're going to go speak to Pharaoh. And Moses says, yeah, but what if they don't believe me or listen to me? Can I have some sort of sign? In the book of Judges, chapter 6, we read about Gideon where God says, I am going to use you to lead my people. And it's interesting because he says, hey, can I have a sign? And so the angel there actually causes fire to consume this meat and this bread that he has prepared. And so Gideon knows. But now it's time to go into battle and Gideon's still not quite sure. He's like, um, how about another sign? What if I have my fleece here and I put it out overnight and I would like for the ground to be dry but the fleece to be wet? And if that happens, I'll know that, yep, this is what I'm supposed to do. And in the morning, he wakes up and he wrings out the fleece. It is so wet, but the ground is dry. And so you think, okay, he's ready to do it. Except he's like, okay, one more time, except let's do it the other way. How about the ground be really wet, but the fleece dry? And so God does it yet one more time. And so finally, Gideon is ready to go into battle. As you can see, people have been asking for a sign, for some sort of confidence for a long time. And so I wonder, have you ever been trying to follow what God is asking you to do? but you felt like you needed to know just a little bit more of the information before making a decision or before obeying. Or maybe you didn't need it, but man, it certainly would be helpful for you to be able to take that next step. You believe that God can do it, but you still wrestle with certain doubts. You know, preparing for this sermon, one of the other sermons that I read, it said that it's not a sin to struggle with doubt, but it's a sin to choose unbelief. Okay, it's not a sin to have doubts because you're working through things, but if I land on this idea of unbelief, that's where God says that's not right. And so Zechariah, he has this moment of doubt. I mean, years of seemingly no answers to prayer about a child and criticism or at least looks from other people. And in a moment where he is focused on serving God, this message comes that changes his life. Like That is a lot to wrap your brain around. But if you look, his question doesn't center around God, if you can really do this. The question really is all about 
him being able to know, how can I know this? How can I have proof that this is going to happen? And so even looking at that question, I wonder, how do you connect? Like, how can I be sure? How can I know? Maybe for you, it's how can I know if this job is the right one to take? Or how can I know which decision is going to make the biggest impact upon my children? How can I know if this is the person that I should marry? Or how can I know if working on my struggling marriage is really worth it? God, how can I know if this pregnancy is going to go full term? How can I know if you want me to serve this person? How can I know if this person will accept my apology or accept my forgiveness? How can I know that, God, you're going to provide for me if I give my tithe faithfully? God, how can I know that you are still good with everything that has happened in my life? Like, how can I know the words in the Bible, they're really true? How can I know that Jesus died on the cross? How can I know all of this is real? How can I know? Like, it's a very real question, and I wonder, what answer would you actually need to know in your situation to know the answer. Like Zechariah, he had an angel talking with him and he still questioned. And maybe you're like, eh, if God sent an angel, that would be good enough for me. You know, I don't know. But like, what do you have to know before you know, before you decide, before you obey? In Mark chapter nine, Jesus comes in contact with a father. And this father, he has a son that has an evil spirit in him that continually throws him on the ground, that makes him gnash his teeth, that makes him foam at the mouth. And this spirit has been within this boy for years. And when talking to Jesus, the father says the spirit has sometimes even thrown him into a fire or thrown him into water to try and kill him. And the father says, if you can do anything, please help us. Can you imagine the father's heart breaking for his son time and time again when all he wants to do is be able to help him? And so now he comes to Jesus and he says, can you do anything? And Jesus responds by saying, if you can, like everything is possible for him who believes. And the text tells us that immediately, immediately without thinking, the father says, I do believe Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, but help me in the areas where I don't believe. The father, he's in a place where he may not know everything about the evil spirit, but he's seen what this spirit is capable of. He may not know everything about Jesus, but this news about this teaching healer has reached his ears. And so even though there's still some unbelief, there's some doubt, there's some uncertainty, he asked Jesus, will you help me in this area of unbelief? Please don't let that be which runs my life. I believe. You know what the root of this question about how can I know really is about my assurance. Like, God, I want confidence in the decision that I need to make. If only I had proof, then I'll obey. And so where do you find that assurance in your life? Where do you find that confidence in the area of your uncertainty? Like for a lot of us, maybe it's in the facts that you can kind of gather up and study Maybe it's in trying all the other options first. Maybe it's in listening to the experts or maybe listening to what the crowd says. Maybe it's what feels right. Maybe it's a combination of all those things that helps you to be assured of a decision that you're making. 
you know, at Lee Strobel, he wrote a book called The Case for Christ. And in it, he writes kind of about his journey of realizing that Jesus is who he says he was. And he includes countless facts from multiple interviews with scholars in different areas to reach this conclusion that Jesus is Lord. And yet in his very last chapter, he says that each person has to decide for themselves who Jesus is. And then he asks, if you aren't ready to make that decision now, what would be sufficient evidence for you? Like, What is it you need before you obey? He implores people not to leave this issue on the back burner because it really is the difference between life and death. So he says, take the time to figure it out. Take the time to figure it out. So figure it out. In your situation, whatever it is, you will probably never have all of the information. You may never have 100% proof. You may have to still take that step out in faith. But as far as assurance, like you can have assurance in the one who is over everything. You can know that what he says is good and what he says is true. You can trust that he will carry you and he will continue working in you until the day of Christ Jesus. And as we look at Zechariah and the other individuals that we're going to be looking at, they didn't get to see the entire puzzle. They did not get to see the entire picture before it was completed. And yet, even though they didn't know how everything was going to work out, they trusted God. And that was enough for them. And so for you this week, even without me giving you more information on your exact circumstance, even without me giving you proof of a choice or even an exact answer to your issue, will you choose to trust God in the face of uncertainty? Will you choose to obey because you know that he is right and he does see the entire picture? I read a fictitious story this week where a defendant was on trial for murder and there's strong evidence indicating guilt, but there was never a body found. And so in the defense's closing statement, the lawyer, he knows that his uh, client is probably going to be convicted. So he resorts to this strange tactic and he says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for all you. And he begins to look at his watch and he says, within one minute, the, per the person presumed dead in this case is going to walk into this courtroom. And so he looked back at the courtroom door and the jurors, somewhat stunned, they all looked eagerly. A minute passed and nothing happened. And finally, the lawyer, he says, actually, I made up the previous statement, but all of you looked on with anticipation. I therefore put it to you that you have reasonable doubt in this case as to whether anyone was killed, and I insist that you return a verdict of not guilty. And the jury, they retired to deliberate, and a few minutes later, the jury returned, and they pronounced a verdict of guilty. The lawyer, he's like, but how? Like, you must have had some doubt. I saw all of you stare at the door. And the jury foreman replied, oh, we looked but your client didn't. Your client never looked. The jury, they did in fact look. They had enough doubt or at least curiosity to look, but they did not let that doubt prevent them from doing their job. How can I know? How can I be sure of this? Like God doesn't ask you to live a life with no doubts, but he does want you to trust him. And so when doubt seems to be screaming out or when strength seems to be fleeting, 
when fear seems to grab hold of you and when circumstances seem to overwhelm you, remember the one who is in the throne room right now. Hear his words that you can believe. Ask him to help you in your areas of unbelief and find your assurance in him. Jesus paid it all so that you and I could have a life with him forever. And if today's the day you've been trying it all on your own and you're like, okay, I don't need any more information. I'm ready to make that choice. I'm ready to obey. Then if you want to give your life to Christ, we'd encourage you to go to the prayer room and we can help you with that. Or if there's simply things that you've been carrying on your own back of this, how can I know? And you want someone to pray alongside of you, we want to be able to offer that as well. But this week, whatever the circumstance, may you and I live this life of trust and obedience in what he's called for us. If you have a decision, make your way to the decision point, the prayer room for the rest of us. Let's stand and sing.